I'm Paul Levinson, and welcome to Light on Light Through, episode 287, my interview with Katya Yakovlenko. Well, you, my loyal listeners, know that I've been ending every episode of Light on Light Through for the last couple of months with a plea for you to help the brave people of Ukraine who are fighting off the Russian invasion. And I thought, consistent with that goal, I would interview someone who has written a wonderful article about Ukrainian art, its history, its relevance, and how that art both represents the free spirit of Ukraine, and how Ukrainian voices can be brought out for the world to hear through the art, music, and writing of Ukrainians. So, I interviewed Katya just a few hours ago, and here now is my interview. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, welcome everyone to this special episode of Light on Light Through. If you're watching this on video, you'll see I have a very special guest, Katya Yakovenko, and she is a Ukrainian scholar and writer. And we uh, met for the first time just this past November, actually. October. So many things have happened since then, you know, it's hard to keep track of uh, the time. And I, uh, I recently got in touch with her because I realized that as a Ukrainian, she and her family and friends have been going through hell because of this horrible Russian invasion. And so I was interested in how she was doing and she, uh, was telling me, uh, you know, what a struggle it is. She's now in Vienna. She she managed to get her sister and niece out of Ukraine, but her parents are still in Ukraine. And she's managed to do some very good writing. W one of the things that struck me in the email she sent me, in, in the email you sent me, is that your way of fighting for Ukraine is to raise your voice, do your writing, and get that voice out to the world. Because there are a lot of Russians out there and a lot of propagandists who are basically lying and not at all telling the truth uh, about what they've been doing. So perhaps we can start with your telling us First of all, how are you doing now? How is your family doing? And what projects you're involved with to get your voice out to the world? Yeah, thank you. I, I think that it's better probably to start from the early beginning. So just to explain my background a little bit. Um, I was born in uh, 1989 in Luhansk region, which is I would say far east of Ukraine, but of course it's not far east in the global understanding, right? Because it's like still in the Europe, but unfortunately very close to Russia. Like my, especially like my town is like 50 kilometers uh, from Russian border, which is like super close. Um, and yeah, and um, I was living there until 17 or 18 years before 
Um, I uh, start uh, studying my um, uh, first ba uh, bachelor and then master in journalism in Donetsk, which is also the eastern region. And then um, just um, just right before Maidan, I moved to Kiev. And a couple of years I was living there, but last four years I was based in Irpin in Kiev outskirts which uh, terribly was destroyed on 75% of residential area was destroyed by Russian uh, during the air attacks. Um, I left Ukraine in March 12, um, and uh, it actually, basically it was quite a difficult decision because everyone tried to do their best. And uh, even the decision to stay at home and being at home, it was like a sort of, uh, resistance because uh, how you can yeah I mean many people just thinking that uh, if you will leave it means that you will uh, give up but no one wants to give up uh, but of course uh, when the fighting become bigger and uh, more horrifying you have to move and um, yeah and I moved to actually all this time I was receiving messages from my friends who like trying to help me to escape to escape from Erpin, but it's uh, was quite difficult because uh, from three, three sides of the city were Russians at the time, and uh, it was a uh, it, it was huge fighting and uh, all bridges was destroyed so only one way was. Uh, at that time was by the railway, uh, but unfortunately also it was quite dangerous. So it was like many reasons um, what, uh, many reasons of uh, difficult and difficulties uh, through my way, but uh, I managed it. I escaped with my friend. She also took uh, with her, her parents who are, uh, originally from Donetsk, so her father, for example, experienced such a uh, horrible thing uh, twice in his life, like first one eight years ago, uh, when Russian was fighting in, um, in Donetsk, and he, he was uh, trying to take a train, but uh, because of fight and train didn't uh, go, so he spent almost a day uh, like going further and back, further and back. So it was quite difficult. This time it was <laughs> difficult to explain him that it's even worse than it was last time. So he said, for example, that, uh, I mean, you know, I saw everything. I already experienced this. What could be worst? But we saw that could be worst. And uh, I mean, each time you're trying to uh, think that there is no more horrifying thing. This is like the last, um, the last point of like horrific things, but not, unfortunately, and yeah some somehow we uh, try to do this we uh, evacuate ourselves through this like famous bridge in Erpin, which was published everywhere i guess in international media and then uh, volunteers help us to get to the um, uh, kiev railway station and there we 
um, were lucky we took uh, a train to Lviv but basically everyone who came to Kiev in railway station it doesn't matter which train you will take this is like the most important that just to escape from that area because it was a lot of shelling uh, but for us of course Kiev is more was uh, and seems more safety than it was in Erpin. I really like uh, experience um, a sort of hope and light when we just cross to Kyiv because I mean it, it it's already feels more uh, safety. Um, yeah, so I moved uh, and just maybe a week after I came to Vienna. Ah, yeah, sorry, uh, be before Vienna, it was also Lviv. It's a starting point where we all like uh, trying to come. And then uh, I received a message from Institute for Human Science where I was uh, in 2017. They asked me how they could help me. And uh, at that time, I already understood that I have to live somewhere and I have to do something and I need uh, time to... Um, just to sit and relax if it's possible of course but at that time it was it seems that it's quite difficult but I wrote I answered that uh, you can host me and help me such a way so they give me this opportunity to be a fellow here again and I really appreciate this because like two weeks of experiencing war I just can't even wrote anything I like two days I would record myself for a um, small uh, comment for radio and it's it's not just some difficult things but it's it's very difficult um, to not even to realize it uh, horrible uh, reality but just uh, to push yourself uh, to do something like it it was like totally silence and desire to like see and um, yeah following events I mean I don't know what it exactly was but it, it was really quite interesting experience of uh, being in this silent but then uh, when I'm come here I start uh, writing again I start speaking with people and trying to rethink my experience um, and uh, yeah and uh, and one week after I just got message from my neighbors that my home was burned so actually basically nothing left and people asked me how how do I feel about that and I actually also do not know what I'm feeling because all this time it was like full of range experiences and emotions like from love and empathy to the anger and hate and the rage so I mean of course I feel sadness um, and I feel sorrow and I feel grief uh, but also I understood that it could be worse because I know that it could be worse. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things uh, that uh, might not be obvious to the world is, is that we here in America, we've really been very fortunate in that we've never been invaded uh, in you know, the way countries in Europe have been invaded. I mean, obviously, in World War II, the Nazis invaded and took over a lot of countries. Uh, the Soviet Union did that after World War II. That's how they created all their satellite countries. And, and, and now Russia is doing it again. 
you know, in my lifetime, obviously, it was a tremendously traumatic experience to be living here in New York when September 11th happened and the World Trade Centers were hit by those planes and collapsed. And that's one of the most traumatic experiences in my lifetime. But that was as horrible as that was. And, you know, and it killed whatever it is, almost 3000 people. It, it just happened literally in a couple of hours. And no one thought, okay, my God, we have to leave our home. And, you know, they're going to be soldiers from a foreign nation coming here, trying to kill us. Uh, but for most parts of the world, they, they do have that very experience that, that you had. So in addition to it being a horrible experience, from our perspective here in the West, it, it, it's a very unique experience. And I, and I have to say, one of the things that has really deeply impressed uh, just about every person with a brain here in America is the bravery and heroism of the Ukrainian people. And I remember the very first night when Russia attacked, there was, um, he was some guy in the military, but not, a, not particularly high up. And he was in Kiev and a reporter said to him, well, you know, you're gonna be leaving Kiev because, you know, the Russians are gonna be taking over the city. And he looked into the camera and almost laughed sarcastically and said, the Russians are never going to take Kiev. I remember saying to my wife, you know, he knows what he's talking about. You could just tell the way he was saying it was not like a military analysis. He was talking about the soul, you know, of your people. So, you know, again, I'm, I'm glad that you're, that you're able to, to get out of there and, and to do the things you're doing. Let me just ask you though one question about where you live, because this is something which uh, I find somewhat baffling. Y you lived initially just a few miles really from the Russian border, and, and there must have been a lot of Russian people in that area. And uh, you know, I know that the I know that Putin, with his lies, he, he's telling the world, "Hey, the the Russians are going to like rise up and." and take, you know, back their country and all that nonsense. Um, what knowledge do you have about what those Russian people in Ukraine have been doing? I mean, do, do they quietly want Putin to win? Have, have they joined Ukraine, you know, other Ukrainians? Because they are Ukrainian. And uh, you, you would think that they would still want their country. So what, what personal knowledge do you have of, of the, the Russian population in the parts of Ukraine that you know about? Uh, well, it's actually quite complicated question because um, I would say that my feeling is that all uh, the statistics of how many Russians do we have, this is also could be completely false because of course we have Russian speaking population, but it doesn't mean that they are Russian. And of course these people um, supports Ukraine and want to be independent uh, 
but of course, still we have some people who support uh, Russian. But again, uh, it should be clear that, like for example, living under eight years of occupation in Luhansk and Donetsk region and watching all the time just one Russian uh, propaganda, uh, you could be influenced by that. And it uh, means that it could be possible that people there have a Stockholm syndrome or something like that. Um, so for now, it's quite complicated to say how many people like really supports Russia, but uh, on that territories that was um, under Ukrainian control, like Ukrainian territory, uh, more than 90% of people are supporting uh, President Zelensky. I mean, and it's actually incredible because, um, I mean, of course, some of people do not like him and didn't vote for him because we know that, I mean, it was a support of 75% of people. But now it doesn't matter who is our president. The matter is that we elect him in a democratic way. And after all, when the war was uh, gone and we will um, uh, work on our democracy processes, it would be another conversation. But now there is no uh, doubt. This is our president. Uh, this is our country. And it doesn't matter which language uh, do you use in your ordinary life or, um, yeah, it, it doesn't matter. It, it, the matter is that you have a Ukrainian passport or not, you are a Ukrainian citizen or not. Um, so I think this is like the basic values that we have and that we already recognize that this is very essential to us. I mean, um, I guess many Russian people who actually from Russia and who came to Ukraine, they were uh, inspired by the processes that we had uh, for this eight years. Uh, even having the war and having annexed Crimea, it's uh, helped us to develop our economy. And of course, of course, we had some like difficulties with that. And we understand that we are not like the brilliant country and we are not like uh, having he, he, huge economical development, but we are working on it. And um, um, yeah, and we know where we want to move forward. Um, for now, I see like, I don't, as I said, I don't know, any um, um, any data on it, but I see on my social network feed and many, many people just even do not read uh, Russian books and trying to speak uh, Ukrainian instead of Russian. Like my sister who is like reading very terribly in Ukrainian just now trying to uh, make her social networks only in Ukrainian. And this is like, a gesture, I think. Um, for, for many people, I mean, it's it's really important to say that uh, even before we had this, I even would not say that this is majority. Um, like, let's say people who was from the Eastern region or Southern region, or even in Kyiv, they like really trying to manifest their position within um talking in ukrainian within like such kind of stuff 
Yeah. Well, I just want to say about uh, you know, President Zelensky, he galvanized the world. You know, there are certain moments in history when a leader gives a speech, uh, says something uh, back here in the United States in the 1930s, when Franklin Delano Roosevelt said we had we have nothing to fear but fear itself. When Winston Churchill spoke to the British people in the world as the Nazis were threatening his country. And uh, I'll never forget, I, we were watching television, and uh, again, it was right after the war started, and, and I see Zelensky uh, in a video telling his people and the United States and the world, you know, th they offered me a ride out of here, but I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And, and just that I don't need a ride, I need ammunition, because, you know, we here in the West have become accustomed to, to the, well, look what happened in Afghanistan, you know, when uh, we were pulling out the United States anyway, and when the Taliban began uh, taking over more territory, before anyone knew it, the, the president of Afghanistan, he's on a plane, you know, out of the country, because he was concerned about his own safety, which is understandable as a human being, but not a very inspiring thing for a president to do. And I think when Zelensky got on the air and said that, uh, he, you know, I, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. The world understood in that instant that this was and is an extraordinary person. So, uh, you know, whoever did vote for him in the previous election couldn't have realized this was going to happen. They couldn't, of course, see the future, but they made a very good decision in retrospect. And I think that Zelensky is going to go down in history uh, as one of the, the great leaders uh, of the 21st century. Let, let's get back a little bit to uh, your writing and, and you know, what you're uh, doing you know, right now, uh, I actually, uh, and people can watch this video, I, I had a conversation in early March with a Polish poet and musician, Zygors Kwiatowski, and he's part of a group uh, called Trupa Trupa. He also has written a book of poetry about the Holocaust called Crops. And uh, during our interview, I mentioned to him a folk singer, uh, here in the United States in the 1960s, who doesn't get as much attention as, for example, Bob Dylan justifiably gets. This other folk singer's name is Phil Oakes, O-C-H-S. And he actually wrote some wonderful protest songs also, I Ain't a Marching Anymore, basically criticizing the militarism of the United States in the 1960s. He wrote a song called White Boots Marching in a Yellow Land about America being wrong to be in Vietnam, which I very much agreed with. Uh, that is, I, I agreed with Oaks that it was wrong for our country to be in Vietnam in the 1960s. But as the 1960s went on and there was so much violence and brutality, uh, Phil Oaks came out with a, an album called Pleasures of the Harbor, where most of the songs were just beautiful songs about history, about just looking out at the harbor and looking at the water and the ships coming and going. And uh, some people criticized him saying, 
why with the Vietnam War raging, would you write a you know, series of songs like this? And he famously now, uh, at least to some people, Phil Oaks said, in, in times like this, when there's so much horror and killing all around you, uh, art is more necessary than ever. We need beauty, we need art, because it's all too easy to forget that. And w when I read that uh, article that you sent me uh, a link to, uh, that's the thought that first came into my mind that here you had to leave your country, your home has been destroyed, I, I, you you want to help make a contribution and you found it in your heart and soul to, to write this beautiful essay. And, and by the way, for those of you who are watching this or listening to the podcast, there'll be a link to this essay in the show notes. So don't worry, you'll be able to read it. Uh, but probably if you're listening to this now, you haven't read it. Uh, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you came to write that essay, what went through your mind, and also what you think you might be doing in the weeks and months ahead in, in this creative mode. Yeah, I uh, actually, I was working in cultural field 10 years, so I had some experiences in uh, research and uh, cultural and artistic processes. And yeah, last... Uh, six years I was working in contemporary arts and in, in research uh, department so we really uh, find a lot of interesting stuff about Ukrainian art um, what was uh, most striking is that we don't have still like written Ukrainian art history uh, of course we have some complications because uh, we do have some art historian and we do have some art critics but all our tradition is mostly based on the Soviet idea of art and uh, all institutions are still working uh, on that direction. Of course there is new generation who trying to rethink all the processes but it's quite difficult because it was too much and um, like for example, archives was burned. Uh, people were dead because they were killed by KGB or like put into the prison. Um, like lots of uh, important processes were happened since uh, early twenties, um, and this is this is historical period when I where I always come back because it was the first uh, time when we proclaimed our independency in um, uh, 1922 but of course this is, was a long process since 2017 and uh, 2017 this is a year when uh, Kiev Academy of Fine Arts was uh, built and opened so it was a huge uh, artistic revival um, it was a time when Malevich was taught in the school and many like other prominent uh, artists, like the stars of avant-garde were like basically there in Kyiv. And of course, this is, everything was gone since the Soviet comes. Uh, the policy completely was changed and the institutions, some were closed. Uh, like for example, it happened with uh, uh, avant-garde theater Berezil, all of them was killed by Soviets in 1937. Um, 
Of course, uh, some of these experiences and works are still um, available, but it's quite a few pieces of information. Um, so when we proclaimed our independence in 1991, some of this information come up through archives uh, or through memories of people. Um, and this is um, become even more deeper and uh, um, like, yeah, appears uh, in different ways since Maidan happened because a lot of young, interesting researchers st start thinking about their past and uh, looking through archives, looking to this like blind spots in our history. So lots of things become more clear. And um, I would say that this is, was the time when we like had this movement of uh, archival or um, uh, documenting or different researchers call it in, uh, differently. But uh, the goal was that we should look to our past to rethink it, uh, because otherwise we could not understand where we should go. And this is interesting because uh, we thought that there is no um, connection between generation to generation because each time it was uh, um, uh, basically uh, destroyed everything. So when we start thinking about this connection, we thought like, like I found this uh, interesting connection through naive and folk tradition like this desire to put uh, to modernism this um, energy, vital energy from uh, uh, naive arts. But this naive art were very connected and work uh, deeply with avant-gardist uh, artists in the 20s. So this is, I would not say invisible line, but actually very, very visible, but this is, uh, unusual line of uh, our modernism. And I would say um, that to me, it's important to eliminate this because uh, we, we have to talk about this. We have to talk about our problematic past um, because uh, we just uh, have no right to forget it. I mean, many people before us were killed and they fight for something. They also fight for freedom. They also fight for some justice and uh, believe in, now we call it democratic values. Yeah, but this is like the basic things like human rights, for example. And the prominent example is uh, Alla Vorska, who has a very interesting biography. She was uh, born in Russian family in uh, Crimea, but then she moved to Kyiv and she meets um, incredibly inspiring people who was uh, talking about Ukrainian national idea and it was like 50s. Um, and she was inspired by that. So she started learning Ukrainian, she started learning Ukrainian tradition and she become like, the leader in this uh, movement, she who is was uh, Russian ethnically, but she decided to be Ukrainian, it was uh, her choice. And I think this is like shows us uh, her courage and her, um, yeah, and destiny, of course, but still uh, her desire to be in with minorities at the time we are was minorities. Um, so she was uh, fighting a lot with Soviets and under fighting, I mean, she 
put all this tradition to her art. She doing a lot of paintings and graphics, but also she working on uh, monumental pieces of art and uh, most prominent examples of her art uh, based in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk region and like two interesting pieces in Mariupol actually in the city of the center. So we don't know if they still survived or not. Um, but she really, she organized uh, around her this very active community of people who was writing letters to Soviets to uh, support uh, writers or in, like intelligentsia because of human rights. Uh, and then uh, they just killed her in uh, late November uh, 1970. 70, uh, she was found in the Kyiv region, uh, horribly uh, killed. Uh, her body was separate of her head, like, like very terrifying, the picture. And of course, even now, there is no clear uh, understanding who killed her, but we all know who or did this. And uh, since the time uh, in Soviet, there was silence about her uh, practices. Uh, uh, she was censored, even she was dead. Uh, some of her friends who did her portraits also were censored. So, so it was a huge movement of censorship at that time, because from one hand, um, Soviets understand that they have to like make a gesture to show that they really could um, uh, could do everything with people who are fighting with them. But also, I guess that they were scared. That's why they was continuing such kind of um, repressions. Um, but yeah, if you will see all these uh, images and documentary photographer of her funeral, you will see that all Kiev come to her funeral because they were loved her and they was inspired of her courage. Um, and I guess that uh, this is what we should take now from her and from people uh, who was supporting her ideas at that time. So we have to struggle as well. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I, I should mention, and I'm not sure if I ever mentioned this publicly, but my grandmother uh, was born uh, in Kiev and she came to the United States when she was about 17 years oh, wow. old. Yeah, back in the year 1900. So uh, her father uh, was a baker, but she and her brothers, she was just a little girl, but the, uh, wanted to come to the United States. Uh, and uh, so maybe that's one of the reasons why I have such a, a good feeling uh, about Ukraine and, and Kyiv. You know, get, getting back to the Soviet Union, I think one of the things also about the West is everyone now in retrospect thought incorrectly that when the Soviet Union fell apart and, and Boris Yeltsin, you know, became president of Russia and, you know, y Ukraine basically proclaimed its independence, as you said, 1991. Uh, we, we all thought wrongly in retrospect, okay, the Soviet Union is gone. Russia might not be a perfect country. It's going to be a lot better than the Soviet Union. But one of the things that... Putin, who I think is 
you know, vying right now to be right up there with Hitler in terms of, of the horror that he has brought to humanity. But obviously, Putin, he, he may be Russian and president of the Russian Federation, but he's acting j just like a uh, Soviet first secretary or whatever they call their absolute leaders. And in addition to being like Hitler, the, the other person who comes to mind, and you mentioned what happened in the 1930s, is, is obviously Joseph Stalin, who um, a lot of people in the West don't even realize is he murdered more people than Hitler did. I mean, so I mean, he, he was a pretty horrible person as well and did a lot of damage. The only reason why here in the United States, he he's not spoken of with the same hatred as we speak of Hitler is because the United States allied with the Soviet Union to beat uh, Nazi Germany. But in retrospect, uh, the Soviet Union w was also a horrendous country. And, you know, to sort of uh, begin to sum up our conversation, and I am an intractable optimist, um, and I guess it's easy to be an optimist being safe here in New York, but, you know, it, it might well be that what Ukraine is now doing and, and with a terrible sacrifice that's, that Ukraine and Ukrainians are being forced to make, this might be the beginning of the true end of the Soviet Union and the end of the kind of Russia, the totalitarian society that, that Putin is running. Because Ultimately, in the end, the, the, the Russians are human beings. And the point's been made many times, you know, their, their soldiers are not coming back home, you know, those who've been killed. And, uh, you know, the, Russia has for a long time been one of the leaders in understanding how to manipulate public opinion through propaganda how if you lie often enough and the lie is big enough and you just totally deny the truth, you'll have a lot of people believe you. Here in the United States, that's how Donald Trump got into power. And that's what his supporters here are still doing. They just lie. They blatantly lie. They, they'll look outside and say, oh, the sky is uh, blue. It's beautiful when it's pouring rain. And somebody will say, well, hey, it's raining. What are you talking about? And they'll say, no, it isn't. The sky is blue. And they just think that by denying the truth. So fortunately, a majority of people here in the United States don't believe in that. But in Russia, a majority of people apparently up until now have supported Putin and his lying and what he's done in the past. And I think that all Ukrainians should take heart in the fact that in addition to fighting off the Russians to save their own country, they are truly, you are truly fighting for democracy, fighting for freedom on a worldwide basis. And already, I think it's become clear to other totalitarian countries, you know what, maybe you shouldn't just lie and invade other countries. Um, so let's uh, conclude by, do you have any specific uh, plans in the near future, or you're just living day by day, you're not sure what's going to be happening. I know that you were interested in coming to the United States to pursue PhD, uh, which I'm sure, by the way, you'd write a great doctoral dissertation. So um, 
what are you thinking as far as your future is concerned? L let's even assume that somehow in the next couple of months, the war comes to an end and Ukraine uh, is beginning to rebuild. And uh, I and means of other people would be happy if Putin just dropped dead. So either that way or you know, whatever way, Putin no longer has that kind of power. So, so assuming that kind of development, what do you see for yourself in the future? Um, yeah, uh, probably I will start with that. Uh, I would not be satisfied if Putin will be just that. I guess it's not enough. Uh, I see him in the prison as well as his uh, team. And I think that this is how like Russia should recognize what they did with us because uh, recently it was published a poll where 85% uh, of people support him. And I think that this is, I mean, this is really true. It's not something fictional. It's really happened with them. And is they really think that uh, they are fighting with some like Nazis or nationalists which is false, of course, but I guess only that uh, when he would be in a prison and he would be judged and he will uh, be punished by the international law, it would be much more clear for everyone that this is the way of justice. Because if he would be killed as Stalin were killed or like that, um, I mean, there is no, um, it could be possible that some next generation would be rethink of him like, uh, you know, uh, like some mystery great leader who like really supports uh, their um, country and people and helped because I mean, they were like really think about Stalin right now as the person who was caring about the country, which is I think insane. Um, but talking about future and being somewhere, it's quite difficult yeah, to think about the future because the future become so immediate. Uh, it's not day by day, but it uh, could be months by months. Um, but I think we all waiting for our um, win in uh, the, uh, the winner moment. And you said that you American too uh, optimistic uh, being there in safe, but I would say that there is no more optimists uh, as Ukrainian because they are living suffering, but they're still waiting for this great moment of victory and they know that it would be soon. Um, so yeah, I mean, you also said about art that we have to have something to um, hope to have like feeling about the future. And I think all our art, some of people uh, who are like musicians or artists are fighting now because they choose uh, this very active way of uh, struggle and resistance. But some of them like still continuing their work and they're doing incredible work. Um, I could just mention Anton Slipakov, who did, uh, who from Kherson originally, and who before was a Russian speaking uh, singer. But now uh, the album before he did Ukrainian language um, album. And this one, it's called Varnyakanya. It's just incredible. I mean, it, it's, it's not very optimistic, yes, but this is optimistic in a sort of way. 
um, so I really recommend you to listen it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I was thinking a lot about that we all like uh, in a train station waiting for our right train and some trainer comes like because now there is some like many possibilities to people and an academical field as well for artists, but a lot of people just waiting for the right train just to took this train and go forward to Ukraine to uh, work uh, there. And as for me, like, yeah, dreams are changing. Now we had completely different dream and this is what uh, unites us. Well, I have to say that's a great metaphor. And so uh, I'll, I'll leave you with a uh, suggestion. You should write a book about this someday and uh, title the book, The Right Train. And because uh, I think it's a, that that really captures what's going on, and I and actually I really learned a lot uh, just in this conversation. And you know what? I I agree with you. I think that a better fate for Putin, you know, a a better uh, uh, reward uh, in a sarcastic sense for the horror that he's done for him is to spend the rest of his life rotting in some prison. And uh, you know, let, let the world continue to think about that uh, and everything that he's uh, done. Um, so let's you and I continue to stay in touch. We will do that through email. Uh, by the way, uh, send me an email when you have a chance, uh, a link to that artist that you mentioned, and I'll put that in mm -hmm. the show notes as well. And. Uh, you know, I, I wish nothing but the best of luck, you know, for you and your family. And um, I'm sure Ukrainians know this already, but the vast majority of Americans have uh, nothing but love for Ukraine. And we're going to do everything in our power to, to help you uh, win in, in this terrible war that you didn't want. You know, no one in your country wanted it, uh, but all of you are doing a wonderful job already. And I have, I, obviously it's not over yet. And maybe it's just the optimist that I am, but I, I think that you will thrive and, and maybe teach the world a very, very important lesson that it should have learned already, but didn't learn. Do you have any final things you'd like to say, or uh, should we just say... Uh, perhaps just to yeah uh, just to say thank you for this conversation and uh, thank you the people who supports us these days uh, sending money like uh, writing messages doing whatever they could uh, because this is really important because as you said we are fighting for our um, common values right it's it's I guess it should be named like Russian war in Ukraine for democratic values. So it doesn't mean that the, this is responsibility of only Ukrainians. This is the responsibility of the global society who like really stays on that. So yeah, thank you so much. And uh, if you, yeah, if you have a chance uh, to help us in other way, just, yeah, we would be so appreciated. Thank you. We will. And we'll continue to be in touch. The Light on Light Through podcast. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Katya Yakovlenko. 
There'll be links on the show notes to this episode of many of the things that Katya and I talked about, links to the article that she wrote, links to the Ukrainian musician that she mentioned, links to Phil Oakes's music, etc., etc. So just go to Light On, Light Through, and you'll see in the show notes links to all of that. I'll, of course, be back here soon with another episode of Light On, Light Through. It's going to be a review of a brand new science fiction series. The series is new. But the story is very old, not in a bad way, but old in the sense that it's been done already at least three or four different times. So that's what's coming up in the next episode of Light On, Light Through. In the meantime, stay safe, stay sound, and do whatever you can to help those brave people Fight those Russian invaders and get them out of their country of Ukraine. Athens, 2042 AD. She ripped the paper in half then ripped the halves, then ripped what was left, again, into bits and pieces of history that could have been. Sierra Waters had read once that, years ago, it was thought that men made love for the thrill, while women made love for the sense of connection it gave them. Curled up with a good book says, Sierra Waters is sexy as hell. You can find out more about The Plot to Save Socrates by Paul Levinson at theplottosavesocrates.com. Paul Levinson spilled code about an ancient biotech war raging on in secret for centuries.